Well, as we go to God's Word this morning, uh, we're spending a second week now in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 as kind of an exploration of the simple gospel message, you could call it. The fact that we had not received mercy, now we've received mercy. We were in darkness, now we're in light. And we saw how that means, that because of this great transformation that God has given us, we have to proclaim His excellencies in everything that we do. Uh, this morning, I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of these two verses, and namely, that is how these verses call us this chosen race, this royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, so that we can proclaim his excellency. So it, it seems that a big part of the argument of these verses that Peter is making, the argument that Peter is making, is that we as a church, as this uh, redeemed people, are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to look at that aspect of it. How is it that we as a church proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ? So um, Sarah Rutman is going to come and read for us first from 1 Peter 2, uh, 9 and 10, our main text. After that, Anna will come up and read for us from 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 31. Uh, these verses emphasize how none of us in this church are wise in our own efforts, or strong in our own efforts, right? We're all weak, we're all foolish, but God chose us nevertheless and, and made us one body in Christ. So God shows his wisdom through the church in that way. So that's 1 Corinthians. After that, we'll go to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. This connects the fact that uh, Jesus has redeemed us and he's made us clean to the fact that now we, we gather together as a church. And then lastly, we're in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. And those verses make clear that it is the church that displays the manifold wisdom of God. So again, all these verses are designed to, to highlight for us, to outline for us how the church shows the, the wisdom of God, proclaims the excellencies of God. And so if we listen together to God's word now, and then I will come up and preach for us from 1 Peter. So Sarah, feel free to go ahead and come up and begin our reading. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Corinthians 1, 20-31 Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Hebrews ten nineteen through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Ephesians chapter 3, 8-10 To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, those closing words that we just heard, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be displayed to the authorities in the heavenly places, that's really where we're going this morning. How is it that the church could possibly display the manifold wisdom of God? Um, as we look at our verses this morning, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, I hope you have your Bibles open there because that's what we're going to be looking at mostly. Um, that's the essential message that I think we see. Uh, to read for us again, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So that is the church, right? Who is the chosen race? Who is the royal priesthood? Who is the holy nation? Who is the people for his own possession? The church is, Right? And don't just mean Providence Church, right? I do mean the, the universal church. That, that's who God's people is. But that is the church. And what is it that this people do? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So again, through the church, God's wisdom is displayed. Through the church, the excellencies of God are proclaimed. And so that's what I want to look at this morning, is how can we, in particular as a church, as Providence Church, right, one small part of this worldwide body of believers, how is it that we as a church can proclaim the excellencies of God, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Well, first, I want to persuade you that this is a passage that is to be applied to the church. Now, that isn't to say that it can't be applied individually, right? Last week, that was the focus of the message. How can we apply these verses individually? Because certainly it's true that we individually have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But the main thrust of these verses is not the fact that I, as an individual, have been called out of darkness, but that we, as a people, that some collective body of believers have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. On one level, this is plain because the pronouns in this verse are plural. So the very beginning of verse 9, but you are a chosen race. We have a problem in English, right, that the uh, the you that we use is both singular and plural, right? So when we say you, we could mean you individual or we could mean you all. It's not clear. 
Well, in Greek, it is clear. There's a different word for you singular and you plural. And here it's all you plural. So that's one way that we can know that Peter here is talking about a group of people that are to proclaim his excellencies, not just individuals. But I think the even more emphatic way that we see that these verses apply to us as a church and not simply us as individuals is when we look at the whole flow of the letter and we look at the context right around these verses. So verses 9 and 10 in particular are the conclusion to the argument that Peter is making beginning back in verse 22. So in chapter 1, verses 1 to 21, what Peter has basically done is he's tried to highlight the excellency of the gospel itself, right? He's tried to say just how amazing it is that God sent his son to die for us, to give us an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven for you, right? That's the message of 1 Peter 1, 1 to 21. Just think of how amazing the gospel is. But then look where Peter goes right after verse 21, starting in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience for the truth. In other words, having believed the gospel, right? Having believed the gospel, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And then listen where he goes right away. For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, when he says brotherly love, and he says love one another, who is he speaking to? Is this a verse that's going out to all humanity, right? Like, All humanity is to love one another with brotherly love from a sincere heart. Well, of course it's true that we want all humanity to love one another. But more precisely, what Peter is talking about is in these churches that he's writing to, he's saying that you, in the churches, as you're reading my letter, when he says, love one another, or for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he's saying, look around the room at who's around you right now, love those people. That's what I want you to do. I want you to love one another earnestly. In other words, he's talking about the church now. He's saying, because the gospel came, because Jesus came and died and gave us this inheritance, what is now supposed to happen is brotherly love. What is now supposed to happen is the formation of churches, the formation of people who love one another in this way, in the way that Jesus taught us. And then all Going on from verse 22 all the way down to our verses now, there are different ways that Peter talks about the church. So first he talks about the the glory of the church or the beauty of the church in terms of how we were born or how we came into existence. So in verse 23, you, again you plural, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's saying part of the glory of the church is the fact that you exist as a result of this imperishable seed. The the, the seed that that made you, that, that caused you to spring up out of the ground, as it were. That seed is better than the seed of grass or flowers. Because grass and flowers, they wither and they die. But what makes us born again is a seed that will never die. Because we're born of the seed that will never die, we ourselves will never die, right? We're going to live for God forever with him in all eternity, right? Because we have been born of an imperishable seed. So again, that's the nature of the church. We have been born of the same seed. You could also say we've been born of the same father, right? That's why we can call each other brother and sister, because we're all born of the same father. So he's, again, emphasizing how we, who all have this common father, ought to love one another in this common way. 
He goes on from there to talk about how we are a spiritual house. So verse 2, 1. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Again, speaking especially within the context of the church, right? Of course, we don't want to slander anyone. It's true. (laughs) But especially in the context of the church, these things can't exist among us, right? So put away all of these things. And then like newborn infants, in verse 2 now, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So again, he's speaking of how we, as we come to the Lord, verse 3, as we taste that the Lord is good, beginning of verse 4, as we come to him, we, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Now, beloved, this language intentionally echoes the, the temple language of the Old Testament, right? And just like we saw the same words in Ephesians at the very beginning of this uh, of the service, right? That we are this living house, that when we come together, we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And just as God's glory came and descended on the temple when the temple was sanctified, when it was consecrated, so when we gather to worship, we pray that the Holy Spirit would descend and fill this place. Again, by no virtue of the building that we're in or the time or the place or anything like that, but by virtue of the fact that we, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, are now gathered together. So we're a spiritual house. And we get to expect the goodness of God on us. Now, one particular issue that Peter was writing to these believers was about was the fact that they were persecuted, was the fact that they were suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And because they were being persecuted, because they were suffering, a lot of them were growing skeptical about whether they really had to be a part of the church, right? They noticed that the more I'm connected to Jesus and you know, part of what makes it clear that they're connected to Jesus is the fact that they're part of a church. They realize the more I'm connected to Jesus, it seems like the worse my life becomes, right? Because people are hating me, uh, because I'm, you know, maybe losing my job or just losing friends. People think I'm crazy. And so a lot of the Christians that Peter's writing to are thinking, you know what, maybe I should just leave this whole church thing behind, right? My life would be a lot easier, a lot better if I didn't have to belong to a church. But see, now Peter wants to encourage them to think, you know, don't think of the disadvantages of being part of a church. Think about the glory of being part of the church. So in verse 6, he goes on, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're obedient to his call, you may be being, being put to shame by the world, right? But you will not experience ultimate shame. You will not be put to ultimate shame if you are in Jesus. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. So if you're in the church, you have honor, honor from God, okay? Are you getting honor from the world? No, right? The world is hating you. The world is against you, but you have honor in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the honor is for you, for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, right? That is for those who are not part of this church. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Right? So what Peter is communicating to the Christians is that, okay, you're in church, you're feeling persecuted, you're feeling oppressed, you're being put to shame. You feel like it might be worth just, you know, getting out of this while you still have something left, right? But Peter is saying, look to the future. And don't just look to the future, but just look to the plan that God has already enacted in Jesus Christ. And if you look to that plan that God has enacted in Jesus Christ, then then the reality is that those who do not trust in Jesus are the ones that are stumbling. And it is you that even though you may seem pretty down and out, it is actually you who are exalted because you are in Christ. And those outside the church are not in Christ. So when unbelievers say ugly things about you, When they come against you, you know what? It should be like water off a duck's back. It should be like, you know what? The Lord himself, right? The God of all creation has said, I am honored and I'm exalted. And you're going to make fun of me because, you know, you think I'm stupid for believing in Jesus? It's like, well, we'll see who's stupid in the end, right? We know that those who trust in Jesus will not be put to shame, that we have honor. But those that the builders rejected, Guess what? The one they rejected, he's going to be the cornerstone, right? He's the cornerstone of this new temple, of this new house. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so now come to verse 9, and now I hope the, the, the full weight of verse 9 is going to land upon you a little better. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is who you are, right? Again, these people that have this, you know, this victim mentality that, oh, all these bad things are coming against me. I don't know if I I can really stick with the church. I don't know if I can stick with Jesus. Peter writes to them and says, no, listen to this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, don't think of yourself. Don't think of your place in the world in relation to, horizontally, right? In relation to those around you. Think of your place in the world vertically in relation to what God says, right? In that song that we sing, I am not my own, right? We say that I will, I will be what you say that I am, right? I'm not what the world says that I am. I am what you say that I am. That's what Peter is saying here. Don't listen to the rejection, to the mockery of the world. Listen to the approval of God, in Jesus Christ, that God has made you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, Peter is not just telling them this so that now they can like pat themselves on the back and feel better about themselves, right? <laughs> like he, he doesn't tell them this because they, they were feeling bad and he wants them to feel good. No, they have a job to do. And that's where Peter goes in verse 9. You have this identity, you are this people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? So why did God call you? Why did he give you this identity? So that you can proclaim his excellencies. That's your job now. And again, verse 10, Peter's reminding them of this wonderful thing that God's done for them. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I think what's going on in Peter's mind as he's saying that is that the more we grasp that, the more that in our hearts we remember that transition from darkness 
to light. The more we remember that transition from no mercy to mercy, from no people to God's people, the more we remember that, the more we will look with sympathy and love and compassion on those who right now have no mercy, right? Are not God's people, are in darkness. Like I remember when I was in darkness. I remember how miserable I was. I remember when I didn't have any people. But now God's done this amazing work. And so now when I look out at all of those who are in darkness, who have no mercy, I just want to love them. I just want them to know how good God is. And so the question is, how can we do that? How can we proclaim the excellencies of this God to these people? Well, I I think the answer, in a sense, is implicit in this verse. Again, in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And again, what is Peter said before before this statement about the church. He's saying that we have a sincere brotherly love, that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, that we've been born of imperishable seed. That as we come to him, we're being built into a spiritual house. In other words, in all these things, what I hear Peter saying is Peter is portraying the church as a beautiful place. As a beautiful place. And again, when I say church, I am not referring to a building, right? I am not referring to a service, okay? I know that's the way that our our minds in America want to work, that a church is, you know, at this time, right? Or a church is at this place. When I say church, I'm trying to use church in the same way that the, the New Testament used the word. In the New Testament, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It just means assembly, right? It means body of people, right? So you, sitting in the pews right now, combined with me, we are a church. Whether we gathered here, whether we gather Wednesday night, like we did this past Wednesday, whether we gather at picnics, like we'll do pretty soon, when we gather as a people, we are the church. And even when we scatter away from one another, of course, we're in one sense part of this church, even though it's not as clear that we're part of the church when we're scattered as when we are gathered. But the, the beauty in the church, okay, the beauty in the church is in the people, okay? It's in you. And what is most beautiful about the church? I think it is the relationships. It is the connection that the people have to one another. Now, there's any number of passages that I could go to, to to show that this is the case. Again, I think First Peter himself has already somewhat made this case. But maybe the most compelling passage for me is John 17. And so I just want to jump there. If you want to flip over in your Bible to John 17, feel free to do that. But John 17 is one of the most critical passages in all the Bible, okay? If you're, if you're not very familiar with John 17, get familiar with it, okay? Read it every day this week. Read it every day this month, all right? It'll do you good. This is the called the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus in his last hours with his disciples. This is the last words that he has with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And so these are some of the last words that he says. And so Jesus is praying to God, John 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So I think Jesus is saying, I'm not asking only for these disciples who are with me right now, but I'm asking for all the future believers who will come after them. Okay, so what does Jesus pray for us? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do do you hear that purpose statement again? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Does it sound like 1 Peter 2.9, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? How does Jesus want the world to believe that he really is the son of God? The way that Jesus wants the world to believe is Jesus wants unbelievers to look into the church and he wants them to see in the church a unity, a love for one another that is so mind-blowing, that is so otherworldly that they have to say, oh my goodness, God must be in this place. That's That's the only explanation for how they love one another. That's the only explanation for why they're together. This is how the world comes to know that Jesus was sent by the Father. Continue on in John 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus has given the church his glory. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is just mind-blowing. This is amazing that Jesus would say, my glory I give to you. And what does it mean that Jesus gives us his glory? Mainly it means that we love one another. It means that we are so bound together. All the time, again, this mystery that Jesus gives us, that we are bound together almost in the same way that the Trinity itself is bound together. That that's how we're bound together. That people look at that And they say, God must have come. God must be here. That that's what they say. The the way that Peter has of saying this, that I think is so good and so practical, going back to 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter says, as you come to him, who is him? That is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? If you look at the end of verse 3 in 1 Peter 2, tasted that the Lord is good. So Jesus is Lord. As we come to the Lord, as we come to him, that's how we're built into the spiritual house. Beloved, do we want to be a more loving church? Do we want to be a church that better displays the glory of God through us? What do we do? Well, we are to love each other, yes. But the way that the world would say we grow in love for each other is, uh, let me give you a metaphor of, of different ways to stand, right? So the, the way that the world would say that we love each other more is we stand looking at one another, right? So if I want to love Nate more, right? Nate stands here, I'm looking at him, he's looking at me. We admire one another, right? That's how we love each other, right? I say, oh, Nate, you're so good at this, you're so good at that. And Nate looks at me and he says, oh, Rob, no, no, you're so good at this, you're so good at that, you know? And, and that's what the world would say love is, right? Looking at one another and approving of one another. That's how we love one another. But no, what, what does Peter say? Peter says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, that's how we love one another more. 
What does John 17 say? How is love poured out in the church? Is it as we look to one another? No. Jesus says, my glory I have given them. And it says we see the glory of Jesus, that we love one another more. So the picture of loving one another in the church is not that we stand facing each other and admiring one another. The picture of love that we should see in the church is we all stand shoulder to shoulder, right? And we all look at Jesus together. And as we look at Jesus together, as we come to love him more and more, as we come to see his excellencies more and more, what happens? All of a sudden, we we find ourselves bound together more and more. We find that we do love one another more and more. Again, not because we're spending all of our time admiring one another, you know, and what we've all got going on right and all that kind of thing. No, but because I've seen something about Jesus Christ that I love, and I share that with you. And, and then you see that same thing about Jesus Christ that you love. And then you've seen something else, and you share that with me. And I'd never seen that before. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Jesus Christ is so awesome. And as, as we grow in our love for Jesus Christ, our hearts are bound together. Now, of course, some of this is a natural phenomena, right? Like, you know, two people who have the same favorite sports team, they're going to have something in common, right? They're going to like each other, you know? I'm a Vikings fan, so when I meet another Vikings fan, I'm like, oh, hey, you like the Vikings, huh? And I I feel some sense of commonality with him. And so it's true that, that some of what goes on in the church is just the fact that I admire Jesus, you admire Jesus, and therefore we both are bound together, But beloved, the the work of Jesus in the church goes much deeper than that. Because Jesus himself is the the second person of the Godhead, right? We believe that God is triune, right? That God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just as we saw in John 17, Jesus speaks of his oneness with the Father. And the oneness that Jesus has with the Father is the oneness that he wants us to have with one another. And that means that what binds us together in the church, if we are truly looking to Jesus together, what binds us together is not simply the fact that we like the same thing. But what binds us together is the fact that the love that exists within the Godhead itself, that binds the Godhead together in perfect unity, that that love is then poured out into our hearts in the church so that we become this temple of the living God. So that we become a place where God's glory dwells. But again, we we have to keep in mind that that love does not come through just liking one another, right? (laughs) It doesn't come through mutual admiration. It comes through glorifying and honoring Jesus Christ. So I I pray, you know, as as I was preparing the message this week, I was praying, I, I believe that God has given us already a very beautiful church. I'm very thankful for the love that we have for one another in the church, the way we serve one another. One way I, I want us to grow, and not that we, we do this in some measure already, yes, I'm thankful to God for that, but one way I want us to, want to, to see us grow is to really care for one another in the sense of really wanting one another to see Jesus above all things. Because the more we see the perfections of Jesus, the more we worship him together, the more we will love each other. And so as we love one another and as we consider like we read in Hebrews, right? Consider how to stir up one another for love and good works. I want to be very intentional when I think about each of you. What can I do? 
to help you see Jesus more clearly? What can I do to help you love Jesus more? What can, is there, is there some, something about your life that maybe I'm, I'm afraid to ask you because I, I don't know what answer I'm going to get or I don't know how I would deal with that? Let me not be afraid. Let me not be worried about pressing into your life in whatever way. If it means I'm going to have an opportunity to help you see Jesus, to help you walk with him more faithfully. Again, because I believe ultimately that when that happens, that's when we actually love each other more. That's when we as a church glorify God more. And so in this way, we as the church are like this burning fire of the glory of God, right? And again, we're the glo- this burning fire of the glory of God, not because we have excellent services, not because I'm an excellent preacher, not because we meet in a nice building, you know, not, not any, the reason why the glory of God dwells in our midst and the reason why we should hope that those who don't yet know Jesus would come to know Jesus here is because we love one another. It's because we love one another. But again, as I said, the way that Peter is driving this train here in verses 9 and 10 is, again, not for us to become an insular community, right? <laughs> it is not for us to become just fixated on how can we love one another, but that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so for the rest of the sermon, what I want to do is just kind of answer the question of how do we do that? How is it that on the one hand, it is within the church that we most see the glory of God, and on the other hand, we're supposed to bring those who don't yet know God, who have no connection to any church, that we're supposed to help them see the glory of God and want to trust in Jesus? How do we, how do we marry these two realities that seem so far apart, right? Like when we do evangelism, what we're trying to do is we're trying to persuade someone of the worth and the glory of Jesus Christ, right? But based on what I've just argued, the best way to be convinced of the worth and glory of Jesus Christ is to see the love that exists within the church. And when you see that, that's when you'll be persuaded of the glory of Jesus Christ. So how can we bring these things together? And another proviso, again, that the church is not just a service, right? So I know maybe some of you will think, oh, I just need to invite them to service, and then they'll see the love of the church. Well, of course, I hope they'll see some of the love that the church has for one another in a church service, but again, our love for one another should go much beyond 9.30 to 11.30 on Sunday morning, right? So there's more involved than just like inviting them to a church service, right? So that's where I want to go now. We have to be a church that loves one another in this deep and profound way, right? That's, that's the first proviso, right? Nobody's going to see the glory of Jesus Christ if they come into a church where people don't love each other, okay? If they come into a church... Either where, you know, on the, on the worst end, there's fighting or bickering or, uh, like 1 Peter 2, 1 says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, right? If people come into a church like that, they are not gonna see the glory of Jesus Christ, right? In fact, they will be persuaded of the opposite, right? They'll be persuaded, ah, Jesus is definitely not the Son of God, right? If these are his people and this is his kind of place, there's nothing special happening here. I can go anywhere and I can hear envy and slander, right? What should be the case is people come into the church and they see genuine love for one another. And so again, for us to become a more evangelistic church, for us to become a more effectively evangelistic church, I do think the first thing we need to pray for is to pray for deeper love for one another. That the relationships that we have with one another would be of such a flavor, would be of such a profound nature that it would actually be persuasive to the world. 
And so let's repent of our lovelessness. Let's pray for more love. And that's where it begins. We're a church that truly loves one another in this way. And then where do we go from there? Where do we go from there? Well, I think basically what we need to do is we need to find ways of inviting outsiders into our fellowship. Again, not, not necessarily into the whole church fellowship on Sunday morning, but just into the fellowship the believers have with other believers into the church, right? Believers meeting together, that is the church. So, how do we do this? I want to give four basic ideas, and then I'm going to give an example of how this could all go together. The first way that we can do this is we can just talk about life in the church, okay? So let's say we're out on our own, uh, you know, we're not with any other Christians, but we have an opportunity to have an evangelistic conversation. We're talking to somebody about Jesus Christ. Well, one thing we can do is to talk about the life in the church, We can talk about how we love certain brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. We can talk about how they've encouraged us and how we've been able to help them. We can talk about ways that the church has served one another sacrificially so that even if they can't get to know anyone else in the church, they start to get the idea that the church is a place where the love of God truly dwells. And so that's one simple way that you can bring this power of the church into your evangelism is just to talk about life in the church. A second way that you can bring the church into your life of evangelism is to mix your circles of hospitality, okay? Mix your circles of hospitality. In other words, maybe one night you decide to have the neighbors over for dinner, and the neighbors are unbelievers, right? They don't know Jesus Christ. Well, maybe you could also consider having someone from church over at the same time, So then, even though, you know, you right there are not the whole church, at least those two families that are together are at least a a small section of the church, and the way that you care for one another, the way that you relate to one another, might have the opportunity to show this unbeliever the kind of love that exists within the church. And so you can mix your circles of hospitality, and in this way, you could potentially draw others to Jesus Christ. Another thing you can do is you can invite others to join you in evangelism. So this might be like right off the bat. You know, let's say you want to be more intentional about evangelism and you think you're going to have an opportunity. Maybe you do invite somebody else to come along with you, right? When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out two by two. And I think that's part of the logic behind it. But even more than that, what I mean is that let's say you have gotten to meet an unbeliever, you have gotten to talk with this unbeliever about Jesus in some way. Well, don't just consider yourself from that point on the main contact person for this unbeliever, right? Be thinking immediately, right away, who else can I introduce this person to, right? Who else in the church might get along well with this person? Who else in the church might be willing to meet with this person? So you're inviting others into these relationships with unbelievers that you have. And again, in this way, unbelievers will be able to see how the church works, how it relates to each other. The love in the church, the the love that ultimately displays the the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, this last idea, we we can't do so well at Providence because of our our current context. I'll explain in a moment, but I still want to put it out there as kind of a a future vision that I do have that I I pray that we can work toward long term. 
and that is that we can try to live near each other as a church. Now, I know the reason why we're kind of hindered from doing this right now is because we still don't have a permanent location, right? Our church has never had a permanent location. And one of the downsides to that, even though it has many upsides, one of the downsides is that we do live kind of scattered, right? Because sometimes we've been further south, sometimes we've been uh, further west, and now we're here. And so we don't feel like we can necessarily move closer to the church because we don't know where the church might be in another five years, right? But I love the vision and I love the idea that to whatever extent God makes us able to, that we would actually be willing to move closer to one another, right? And that the more we live close together, the more a neighborhood is able to actually see how we love one another as a church. And again, in that way, we're able to make Christ known through the love that we have for one another so that the world can see and believe. And so these are ways that we can bring the world into the life of the church. And I encourage you to just try all of these things, again, believing that the words of Jesus in John 17 really are true, that it is the love that we have for one another that will reveal to the world that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Now, I want to read an example of how this uh, worked in one particular church. This example is from the book Compelling Community. You know what? I, I believe there are examples of how this has worked in some ways in Providence Church as well. So I think I could give examples from our church, but I just wanted to give this particular example because it was so thorough. It had kind of all these elements uh, mixed in. So uh, this is just one page. I just want to uh, read this example to you of how evangelism worked so that the church, so that this a chosen race, royal priesthood, together proclaimed the excellencies of Jesus Christ. All right, it says, uh, the man's name is, is Walter, the man who came to the Lord. It says, several months after Walter's first run, another friend of mine, Brady, walked through a train station looking for people to talk with about Jesus. He noticed Walter and passed him by, but his conscience was pricked. So he retraced his steps and asked if Walter wanted to talk. As Walter reflected later, he'd noticed the Bible Brady was carrying had an, and had an odd urge to ask him about it. But being the quiet type, he'd resisted. So when Brady walked directly up to him, he was surprised and delighted. They talked through the gospel, read through sections of the Bible, and parted company. Walter was intrigued, but still lost in sin. Okay, so just notice that. It's just an individual going to a person, sharing with them about Jesus. So it starts with one person, yes. The next time they met, Brady started reading through the Gospel of Mark with Walter, and he began introducing him to various members of his church, various members of his church who introduced him to yet other Christian friends. One of those new friends sang a song on Easter Sunday about Christ's resurrection that Walter couldn't shake. At the end of a long run a few weeks later, with the lyrics of Jesus is alive repeating through his head, Walter suddenly realized that he believed Jesus was alive. On his knees, he trusted in Christ. By the time he was baptized, dozens in the church already knew his story, right? So it started with Brady. Brady introduced him to others in the church. He eventually ended up coming to a church service, right, where he heard a sermon, where he heard a song that was convicting to him. So what led Walter to the Lord? Who gets the notch in his spiritual belt with another miracle of conversion? Well, ultimately, it was the Lord himself, wasn't it? John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But whom did God use? Was it Brady, who had the courage to walk up to a stranger and explain the gospel? Was it Andy, who met him a few days later? 
Was it Mark who preached one of the sermons God used to pierce Walter's heart, or was it Shai who sang the song? I suppose you'd have to answer yes to all of these. In my experience, Walter's story is typical of the pattern it follows. For him, evangelism was personal. That is, he didn't simply wander into a church by himself, intrigued at what they had to offer. Instead, he first heard the gospel through a relationship with Brady, even if that relationship was only two minutes old. But evangelism wasn't merely personal, it was also corporate. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly who led him to the Lord, since all sorts of people from the church were involved. Mob evangelism is how I like to describe it. And the wonderful news about Walter is that this personal corporate evangelism didn't stop with him. Shortly after his baptism, he told the church that before his conversion, he'd committed crimes that deserved jail time. Following Christ meant repenting of these things, so he turned himself into the authorities and went to prison to serve his sentence. While in jail, a congregation he hardly knew showered him with visits and letters. To his fellow prisoners, that love added weight and reality to the testimony of God's grace they heard from Walter. Before his release, Walter's cellmate also professed faith in Christ. So do you see how Walter goes from this person who doesn't know Jesus through his first individual act of evangelism, being invited to know others, coming into the church, and then having to go to jail because he was repenting of his former sins, and then his cellmates coming to know the Lord because of the love of the church displayed within the jail. So in this way, the church displayed its identity, as 1 Peter 2.9 says, displayed its identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And as those who did not know Christ saw this people, saw this people who had this otherworldly identity, who had this identity in Jesus Christ that was far better than any identity in the world and caused them to act in a way, act out of love, in a way that they'd never seen before in the world, decided that they themselves wanted to come and know this Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, when Peter tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession— that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? What Peter is exhorting us to do is to first own the excellencies of God as a church, right? To let the glory of God fill us as a people. Let the excellencies of God, especially the excellency of love, let that fill us as a people. And then let us as a people be on display to the world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, as we all line up shoulder to shoulder, admiring the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we pray that the world will see something that they've never seen before and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Beloved, I invite, you all of, I invite all of you to be a part of this incredible adventure together this morning. This adventure of proclaiming the excellencies of God, this adventure of being a chosen priesthood or a royal, sorry, a chosen race of royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It's the best thing in the world. There's no better job you could do. There's no more glorious reality you could experience. So come to Jesus Christ this morning. Be a part of his people and proclaim his excellencies to the lost world. Let's go to the Lord Jesus in prayer right now. Let's pray that he would do this, what I've just described Let's pray that he'll do even beyond what I've just described, work around the world. This is a time to confess your sins to the Lord, 
Repent, ask him to work in your heart, to pray for one another, and again, to pray for the needs of the world around us. So let's go to God in prayer together now. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you indeed did call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. I thank you, Lord, how you continue to do this work all over the world right now. And we pray that you would especially continue this work right here in Pittsburgh. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a people to know our identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Would we know the glory that rests upon us as the spiritual house that you're building? And Lord, would you help us to reveal that glory to the world, to proclaim that glory to the world? Lord, would you now hear our prayers of confession, hear our prayers of petition and intercession on our own behalf and on behalf of the world around us now?